Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us for today's important episode. We're going to be talking about one of the most critical problems the world is facing and will face in the 21st century, and that is water. Globally, 1.2 billion people do not have access to clean water, and another 2.7 billion lose access to clean water for at least one month out of the year. Today, our guests are all award winners. They were at the UN on November 2nd, and UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and His Royal Highness Prince Khalid bin Sultan bin Abdulaziz awarded eight leading researchers um, an international prize for water in recognition of their innovations and inventions that have they've developed to help address the world's urgent energy water problems. And we're going to talk with four of those award winners today. Our first guest is Dr. Islam. He's a professor and director of the Water Diplomacy Program at Tufts University, and he was awarded for his contributions in diminishing the impact of waterborne diseases. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Islam. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Jill. Well, so you cholera received- can kill an adult within 24 hours of infection without proper treatment. This disease continues to be a significant health threat across many regions of the world, especially in coastal areas of South Asia sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. Cholera is a bacterium that lives and thrives in two distinctly different environments. One we call micro-environment of human body. Other one is the macro-environment of salty water. The deep disciplinary focus on examining micro- and macro-environmental factors has produced a vast, yet somewhat disconnected knowledge base of cholera, despite Steady accumulation of knowledge of cholera in these two environments, we still cannot adequately predict when and where the next cholera epidemics will strike. Mm-hmm. Because cholera exists naturally in the environment, because of the growing evidence of new biotypes emerging, it is unlikely that cholera will ever be eliminated like smallpox. Mm-hmm. So consequently, we need a new intervention approach. A cholera warning system to minimize the impact of this devastating disease by prior planning and implementing effective solutions. In our approach, we start with a simple premise, data-rich modeling driven by adaptive theory. We let the big data dictate the development of an adaptive theory and prediction model for cholera. Such a premise allows a transformational approach to protect vulnerable and resource-limited regions against cholera. Mm-hmm. The idea is very simple, to develop a cholera warning system by synthesizing recent advances in satellite remote sensing, adaptive understanding of environmental conditions, and big data to develop a cholera outbreak prediction model. To put it simply, in 1960s, it was widely believed that cholera was only transmitted from person to person. However, my co-winner, Dr. Rita Caldwell, and her team was the first to discover that cholera can survive in the natural environment and may have some association with zooplankton. Cholera bacteria show strong association with plankton abundance in coastal ecosystems. They're related with copepods and zooplankton that feed on phytoplankton. 
Therefore, if you have high level of phytoplankton, it may lead to high level number of cholera outbreaks, mm-hmm. increasing the likelihood of cholera epidemics in coastal human populations. But phytoplankton or zooplankton cannot be easily measured over large areas on a continuous basis. My research group at Tufts University was the first to explore the potential of satellite data to track coastal plankton bloom using routinely measured chlorophyll as a surrogate for plankton abundance and subsequent cholera outbreaks. Our teams from Tufts University and University of Maryland have put together two different domains of knowledge and developed this cholera prediction model using satellite data over very large regions. Satellite data with these unprecedented spatial and temporal coverages and very easy accessibility have the potential to monitor coastal processes and track cholera outbreaks globally. Brilliant. Brilliant. And once you detect the conditions that would allow you to predict a cholera outbreak, what types of preventative measures can be taken to protect against human infection? So once we are able to make a prediction of cholera outbreaks, let's say three to six months in advance, resources can be mobilized to minimize the impact of the disease. What we call this is preemptive medicine. Mm -hmm. We are trying to preempt by doing what? By tracking and predicting cholera outbreaks from space. We will utilize recent developments in remote sensing and complementary expertise of partners from the U.S. and affected regions, for example, Bangladesh to mm-hmm. mobilize resources for vaccinating highly vulnerable groups, providing oral hydration therapy to affected people, and enhancing water and sanitation infrastructure to minimize the spread of the disease. Mm-hmm. We expect our findings and recognition of this work through this international prize will create the awareness and momentum to operationalize this cholera index that can be used in different parts of the world as a preemptive medicine by knowing when a cholera epidemic is likely to occur based on satellite-based information from space. That is fantastic, and, and it's utterly brilliant. Uh, now, talk to us specifically about how your solution has been already successfully implemented in Bangladesh. So with the ever-expanding geographic reach of the cholera pandemic and alarming fatality rate in newly affected region, it is apparent that global cholera prevention strategies are not being effective in reducing the disease burden. Why do I say that? There is no reason for fatality rates to exceed 6% recently in Haiti or other newly affected regions when South Asia reports less than 1%. This six-fold decrease can be achieved by effective translation of proven prevention methods with timely prediction of outbreaks. Mm -hmm. A cholera prediction model with spatial and temporal information about impending outbreaks can provide the critical lead time needed to deploy medical and human resources, mount preventive interventions, and reduce the disease burden. Bangladesh, for example, with its globally recognized International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research Center in Dhaka, has developed a very effective and low-cost oral rehydration therapy, or ORT, a popularly known as magic bullet or oral saline in 1970s. Diarrhea was the leading cause of child mortality, accounting for 4.6 million deaths annually. ORT was introduced in 1979 in Bangladesh and rapidly became the cornerstone program for the control of diarrheal disease. Currently, ORT is the most widely used and effective intervention strategy to minimize the disease burden 
for all kinds of diarrheal disease. In February 1994, the director of major UN agencies, Prime Minister of Bangladesh, medical researcher, international health advocates, and politicians gathered in Dhaka, Bangladesh, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of this life-saving technique, now known, widely known as ORT, or Oral Hydration Therapy. Although Bangladesh has achieved less than 0.1% mortality rate from cholera, as I mentioned before, Haiti has experienced over 6% mortality rate. Mm-hmm. What we need is it to refocus our attention on the continued underutilization of this magic bullet throughout the world. We hope in three years, hopefully by 2019, when we celebrate 40th anniversary of this oral rehydration therapy, we will have an operational global cholera prediction model to predict and prevent cholera from all over the world. Oh, wouldn't that be something? That's, that is an exciting thing to look forward to. And Dr. Islam, I have to ask, on a personal note, what prompted you to work on this particular aspect of the global water problem? There are so many issues that you could have focused on. What was it that, that drove your energy on this issue? Wonderful. This is what I was thinking that you would. So in my work, really, water is all what we think and do. So what that means is that we integrate theory and practice. We try to synthesize explicit scientific information and tacit contextual understanding to create what I call is actionable knowledge. Knowledge not for knowledge's sake only, knowledge to take action so that it can have societal impact. By that, what I mean is that in 2016, for example, the World Economic Forum identified water crisis as the number one global risk. Yet, In the recently signed COP21 agreement, water did not appear once. Wow. There is a disconnect. Water is everywhere, yet it is nowhere. 85% of fresh water is used for agriculture, yet water does not show up in any serious trade negotiation. One child dies every eight seconds due to lack of access to clean water and sanitation. Yet, we have not addressed this basic human need. To address this disconnect between our knowledge of science and our social action, we need to develop global awareness of water for actionable outcome. The days of science for science's sake have passed. We now need science for societal impact. This is where this prize and the role of UN are vitally important. Cholera is not an old disease. Water conflict is not a new problem. Over the last 30 years, my research group has looked at these apparently disconnected water problems to provide synthesis of theory and practice with measurable outcomes. For this particular problem, hydrology meets microbiology and combines with epidemiology and engineering to develop a satellite-based cholera prediction model. Such an approach is vital to implement a predict and prevent strategy that includes timely mobilization of treatment resources an effective vaccine for reducing the disease burden. Our satellite-based cholera prediction model has the functionality to be useful for many regions of the world where minimal or no resources are available for ground-based measurements. My hope is that our finding will enable the medical and health community to anticipate and prevent cholera outbreaks. I hope it will draw global attention for action and will operationalize this predictive model to save lives. 
Uh, Dr. Islam, what a what a noble and important mission you're on. You know, many of our listeners are students, and we have about a minute left with you before we go to commercial. Talk to them, give them some advice and encouragement as they are on the very precipice of their scientific careers, many of them. So let me start by reflecting on a paper written by Professor Biswas in 1981 in Foreign Affairs, Water for the Third World, where he argued goals and targets are easy to design and resolution are easy to pass. International agreements on targets will in no way guarantee that the necessary plans will be developed. Why is that the case? To address any complex water issues in water diplomacy program, we ask a very simple question. Who decides who gets water and how? Interesting. And that's going to require so many students from different disciplines uh, to be focused on those issues. I wish we had another hour to spend with you, Dr. Islam, but we have to go to commercial break. Thank you so much and congratulations on your award. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, our subject today is water. It's a global crisis. There are so many people who don't have clean water and even more who lack access to clean water at least one month out of the year. We're talking to four award winners of the 7th Annual Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz International Prize for Water that was given out on November 2nd at the UN uh, by the, the Prince and 
by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Our next guest is Dr. Gary Parker, a professor of civil and environmental engineering and geology at my alma mater, the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And he was awarded uh, for his contributions to the understanding of changes in river flow and the resulting impact on land losses and gains. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Parker. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. You received the Surface Water Prize for your work to clarify what causes rivers shifting shapes, so helping to understand the impact of meandering rivers have on a water on the water flow and the floodplains um, these water sources may m- migrate to. So help us understand why the shifting of rivers plays such an important role for areas that are at risk for water depletion. Of course, I got that question early, and I thought about it to try and figure out the best of many examples that brings things home. And the example that seems the best one to bring things home in a short amount of time um, is the case of monkeys and humans and a meandering river. And <laughs> the river I'm talking about is the Tana River in Kenya, and uh it flows into the Indian Ocean. And along the reach where it flows into the Indian Ocean, uh, the landscape is desert, it's very barren, and the only place where there's any forest is right along either bank of the river, because the river supplies water. And that forest is a habitat for a species of monkeys. And this is where they've lived for as far back as, as anyone can say. But at the same time, human beings live in the area, and the only place they have where they can farm is on that floodplain because the river provides a source of water. Now, like any meandering river, the Tana River shifts back and forth across its floodplain, maybe something like one feet to ten feet per year. And it takes out land on one side. No problem in general. It makes an equal amount of land on the other side. However, in regard to the monkeys and the humans, the um, uh, land that is lost is lost forest. And the land that is gained is immediately occupied by humans for agriculture. And the result is, as time goes on and as the river migrates in its very natural way, uh, due to the relative scarcity of water, monkey habitat disappears in favor of uh, uh, areas where humans can engage in agriculture. And then the question is, we have a competition between humans and animal habitat. We all have to find a way to live on this planet together. Uh, And this then highlights... uh, some of the issues that we have to consider in trying to learn how to live together. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sure that, you know, I'm thinking, I, I, I grew up near the Mississippi River, and as, you know, that river overflowed its banks, it, it was because there was development, human development on the sides of the river, um, you know, that caused a lot of issues just in and of itself. What is it that causes land to erode to the point that actually changes the course of a river? Okay, um, it's uh, one of my favorite questions. Uh, there's small-scale erosion and large-scale erosion, and on a river like the Mississippi, Mississippi before it was uh, levied and diked, and the Tana and many other streams, uh, such as, you remember the Sangamon River, uh, since you're from Illinois. Um, oh, yeah. So, such streams like yeah. that, they erode their banks naturally in unpredictable ways usually not in horrible disasters, 
But uh, rivers are a bit like the weather. You can't quite pinpoint exactly what they're going to do. We know the trends. We do know they're going to shift, but we can't predict 100 years down the line what it'll look like. There's other kinds of shift which are different. And uh, the one I decided to highlight here is the case of the Yellow River in China. And when you mm-hmm. hear a list of great, liver, great rivers around the world, everybody makes sure they have the Yellow River on it. But in fact, the Yellow River is not a particularly large river. Um, its discharge uh, is about a fifth of the Mississippi River. What's important about the Yellow River is it has the highest sediment load in the world. This river is chock full of mud and sand. The reason is, is it flows through a zone called the Lurs Plateau, which is extremely erodible sediment that just melts like chocolate. Uh, and then it flows out onto the North China Plains with a much lower slope, and it dumps a lot of its sediment out. And the reason it dumps it out is because the velocity declines quite remarkably. So the riverbed builds up, builds up, until the channel jumps north or south, then builds up, builds up, jumps north or south. And it's been doing that for all of recorded history um, because of this excess load that has to move through a relatively low slope zone. Um, so the river has swung back and forth uh, like crazy. And uh, the Chinese have been dealing, dealing with it by, among other things, trying to control erosion on the Lurs Plateau. But very recently, there was mm-hmm. a fascinating paper. Uh, according to Chinese history, there's a list of five ancient emperors in the very first days of China who we thought were mythical. One of them, the great Emperor Yu, uh, was a river engineer on the Yellow River, according to the legends. Very, very recently, a record of an enormous flood just about the time that he should have been alive was actually found on the Yellow River. Wow. Interesting. Really interesting. Now, there are reportedly 167 countries expected to face some level of water depletion by the year 2040. That's not far off. Help us understand what that could mean to the everyday American college student right now who will be middle-aged by then. What are the human health and geopolitical ramifications of that? Okay, as you've noted from my talk, I'm not very good at uh, visionary talk, but I think I can bring an example (laughs) that will drive things home. Uh, The young people of of America need to get ready for something. Uh, I visit from time to time Singapore, which is a tiny island country. It doesn't have any water shortage Mm -hmm. in terms of rain. It rains plenty there. But it has nowhere to store the water. And the fact that it has nowhere to store the water has has meant that Singapore has, has had to become very resourceful in every way possible to find sources of water. And one source of water that they're utilizing right now is the water we flush right down the toilet. And they're using it for drinking Mm -hmm. water. And when I visit Singapore, there's usually a free bottle of the stuff in my hotel room, and I'm always very happy to drink it. I trust that Singapore has done its job well. Likewise, in any sustained space voyage, we'll have to do the same thing with our water. Mm -hmm. Get ready to live with some things that you might think are icky but which will be perfectly fine 
when processed correctly, that allow us to treat our water in a much more precious way than we're doing today. Interesting. So we're talking about reverse osmosis and recycling, correct? Yes. Interesting. And quite a bit you of know, processing a- to remove. Quite a bit of processing to remove all kinds of things. Reverse osmosis is not enough. But we have ah. known for a long time how to make wastewater perfectly drinkable. Well, and that requires a lot of energy. So, you know, this is where we can't be so siloed and just thinking about water alone. We're going to have to think about, um, you know, how we deal with the energy that will be required to manage that kind of, that level of wastewater treatment. In a recent press release, you were quoted as saying, Saudi Arabia has no perennial flowing rivers, but they've constructed the Wadi Hanifa, a beautiful river with green floodplains using reclaimed water. It's a lesson for me and the future of the world. Talk to us about what we can learn from the Wadi Hanifa. Well, the basic idea is they created something rich from waste. Now, the capital of Saudi Arabia is Riyadh in the middle of the country. Although I've been to Saudi Arabia, I haven't been to Riyadh. But I know it's one of the driest places in the world. Imagine being born and raised in a place where there is simply no natural green. You leave the city and it's just desert. And then one day, you're driving around, and you suddenly come across a strip of green in the distance where you see trees and various vegetation on both sides of a strip of water that's sparkling in the sunlight. Exactly how would you feel? This is, if you want, as as close to paradise as you can get um, in a place like Saudi Arabia. And this showed tremendous vision in terms of deciding that wastewater could be used not to put in a fountain in the middle of the city, uh, as we might have done in Las Vegas, but to make a green strip where people can have picnics, where they can grow dates, and indeed where they can learn a bit about how actual rivers work. And uh, it has to be one of the more unexpectedly delightful things you would ever come across in such a desert environment. And I, I particularly like it, again, up for the educational part. Mm-hmm. Speaking of education, you know, a lot of our listeners are students. And, you know, when they think of green jobs, they may think of, uh, you know, working in a recycling plant or something like that. But you have a background in civil and environmental engineering and geology. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left with you. What advice would you give to students today in choosing a career path that will help them solve some of the biggest problems ahead in the 21st century? Um, I work on rivers. Rivers, to me, are almost living things. They respond almost in a living way. Uh, I am not a riparian biologist or ecologist, but I think riparian ecology would be a great place to work for young people. and They could both enjoy the uh, river itself and its environment and also be of great benefit to society. But Wonderful. I would say sometimes, sometimes we have to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. And I think young people are going to have to deal with global warming. 
Well, I think you're right. And you're at a perfect institution to do that. That's the University of Illinois. I have to plug my alma mater. Thank you so much, Dr. Parker. And thank you so much uh, for being on the show. And congratulations on your award. We've got more Go Green Radio right after this, folks. So don't go away. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, our topic today is water. We're talking to four awardees of uh, an award that was just given out at the UN on November 2nd by the UN Secretary General um, Ban Ki-moon. And it's the seventh annual Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz International Prize for Water. And our guest in this segment is Dr. Peter Webster, a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And he was awarded for his contributions in, dimin- in the uh, diminishing the impact of monsoonal floods on highly populated river basin regions. Congratulations, Dr. Webster, and welcome to Go Green Radio. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Now, you were a co-recipient of the Creativity Prize for your work to predict monsoonal flooding up to two weeks in advance. Talk to us about the science behind these predictive models that you produce. Yes, uh, it goes back to uh, uh, a lot of work that I've done in the past uh, um, on, on the basic interaction of the ocean and the atmosphere and the ability to predict uh, what the monsoon rainfall will be. I apologize for my, my voice, by the way. I have quite a bad cold. So. Oh, <laughs> feel better. No worries. <laughs> no worries um, at all. 
So um, uh, it, it, it occurred to me about, uh, oh, my goodness, 10, 15 years ago, there were devastating floods in, in Bangladesh. Uh, 60% of the country was covered in water for three months. And uh, there was no warning, uh, nothing at all. And, and we were asked, is it possible to be able to predict these floods and give flood warnings so that the, the, the people can respond and do something about it? And so we, we thought about it for a long time and had a couple of uh, false alleys we went down. And eventually we came up with a, a scheme uh, which is based upon uh, prediction of rainfall and the use of hydrological models to be able to go to about two weeks advance. And I must say that uh, it worked. Uh, we, we, we are still used in Bangladesh, and we have a similar scheme for Pakistan, and we would like to, Thailand to have a similar scheme too. So it's, it's um, really on the prediction of rainfall, but not just the prediction, it's the prediction of the probability of rainfall. Uh, mm-hmm. Saying yes or no that there will be a flood is, is not particularly useful. Because you either believe it or you don't. But if I were to say that you have an 80% chance of exceedance of a flood level or um, 70% chance or a 20% chance, you can make your own decisions on what you will do uh, with these flood forecasts. So mm-hmm. uh, in, in a nutshell, what we have is a, a system based upon basic science that has a, a societal impact for people to use. Well, and let's talk about how people will use that. Let's talk about the practical application of your innovation. If you're able to predict flooding in advance, what will the communities in the path of these deadly floods be able to do? Are there community mechanisms in place to use your predictive models to save lives? Well, yes. uh, One has to take a step back and ask what it was like in the past. Uh, There was, in Bangladesh, a saying which is rather sad, actually, that one is born to suffer. And part of the suffering is losing everything you have every few years because of a flood. No warning, no, uh, nothing you can do, nothing you can save, except if you lose your cow, for example, you have to go to the money lender, and there's five years of, of labor in order to be able to get your cow. So uh, this uh, issue, the way it was, there was no warning whatsoever. And it's the same in India, the same in Pakistan, and so on. And so if you can um, uh, do two things, if you can give the probability of a flood occurring and make it known to, the, to a populace and then train the people to know what to do if there's a flood occurring. And so uh, in 1987, 1987 89 we um, uh, uh, had about six or seven counties in in Bangladesh that we, we trained and worked with. And um, it was amazing that, the, that, with, that we had three major floods during that time. <clears throat> they were given warnings about 10 days in advance. And um, they, they did an enormous number of things. For example, they um, uh, harvested early. They, they put their cows and cattle on high ground. Um, they, um, and um, they, 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 all their personal belongings they managed to save. And so the, the saving per family, it doesn't sound very much, was about $400 per family per flood. That's about their annual income. So wow. instead of starting from scratch, uh, the, these, these um, people could use strategic adaptation, if you'd like, in order to be able to um, uh, um, not... Uh, th- th- there was resilience uh, all of mm-hmm. a sudden in the society, which they didn't have before. I love that. I, I mean, it's, it's just 
so heartwarming to know that, you know, people won't be caught off guard, that they can not just save lives, but also, you know, such valuable material possessions um, that can mean the difference between starvation and, and not. You were recently quoted, Dr. Webster, as saying the following, I hope to make this forecasting model available worldwide so that we can all determine the risk of flood events and allow local populations to take their fate in their own hands. This will require international collaboration. Dr. Webster, what do you envision in terms of international collaboration on this issue? Uh, This is my dream. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Think of what I've just mentioned about Bangladesh. Let's assume that You go to a small nation uh, or, or less developed nation like the Philippines or um, somewhere in Africa, and uh, they do not have the forecasts of weather, severe weather that we have in the United States or Europe. Um, now, they, they can be made available, but the trouble is um, the bandwidth, the computer bandwidth to absorb 15 days of forecast at high resolution is terabytes per day. And that just swamps any, um, uh, a, a, any computer system. And then when they get the forecast, even if they could, what do you do with them? So my idea is uh, to funnel forecasts. And, and the idea would be that you, you take the, the major forecasting places like the European Center or, or NOAA, and you would strip off just that data that a particular nation would need. And then you would provide modules in order for them to be able to do their uh, own forecasts <clears throat> using the basic data that you provided them. And this, this would, I think, revolutionize the, the way that people uh, deal with weather, deal with severe events, deal with tropical cyclones, deal with uh, floods and deal with droughts. And it, most importantly, it's not us telling somebody what to do. It's allowing the people who, by the way, are, are best placed to make the decision um, of, of, of dealing with hazards. It puts it in their hands. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not a particular expensive thing. Uh, the, the, the funneling or the conduiting, whatever you want to call it, uh, is really for, for globally just... just um, I don't know about this cost of a wheel on a fighter jet. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but it, it, it's uh, very, very cheap. And, and just think what it might be able to do. Uh, so I, I, I'm a great believer um, of putting decisions in the hands of the user and rather than somebody telling people what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- I'm sorry, people in Bangladesh and India for, for, for time memorial have, have just, if they know a flood is coming, they know what to do but they didn't know a flood was coming. But now we have the chance of being able to tell them. That is amazing. What, what, a, what a breakthrough. Now, in addition to your work at the Georgia Institute of Technology, you're also the chief scientist at the Climate Forecast Applications Network. Tell us about the work that you do with that organization. Yeah, it's, it's rather strange because we started off years and years ago. We had climate forecast applications in Bangladesh or CFAB. And uh, we formed that in 2002. We had a small amount of money. And by the way, <laughs> getting money to do applications work from NSF or from most organizations is very, very difficult to do. And so um, <clears throat> we had a, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year to be able to do this. And, and uh, my dean said, you know, uh, you're paying 50% overhead on 
uh, these grants have come through Georgia Tech. Why don't you form a little company? And then you don't have to charge overhead. And you can use all the money for, for trying to um, do this uh, developing work, work. So we formed CFAB. <clears throat> and eventually uh, we, we uh, renamed it CFAM because we were doing more things besides uh, Bangladesh. And CFAM is a, an organization that does forecasts for, uh, we do forecasts for China, we do forecasts for India, tropical cyclone forecasts. And we make these available at a very minimal cost to, 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 the, to the world. It's not quite the same as I just mentioned before about internationalizing uh, the, the, um, the forecast, but it's on the way to be able to do that. Uh, I, I would like to be able to provide the forecast for people to be able to use as, 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 as they see fit. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, so it's, it's C, CFAN is a, 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 an organization which is very broad. We have, I think, collaborators in about six or seven countries. We have a staff of about 15 people. And we, we, we work with on, on the very small margin of profit. <laughs> but it, does some, it does some good work. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I really like to emphasize the educational background of my guests, particularly when we have a show like this one that I know will attract our college student listeners. You earned a PhD in meteorology from MIT. And I'm just wondering, at the time that you earned your doctorate, did you think that you would be working on such consequential, life-saving issues? And what advice do you have for today's PhD candidates? It, it's, it's interesting you should say that, ask that question, because um, when I went to MIT, uh, I, I was an effectively an applied mathematician, and um, we were just starting in our field of working on uh, uh, some global problems, and I, I, I had the opportunity to go to, to India and uh, thought there, well, maybe some of the things we're learning can be of use. So um, I, I don't think you have to give up science to do something useful. I think in some ways it would be a shame to, to not do good science uh, uh, and because then you wouldn't have anything to apply. And so I, I really didn't know uh, what I was going to do. I got a PhD and I went back to Australia, as it turned out, and, and uh, finished up at Georgia Tech. But um, uh, it's just, I think you just have to keep your mind relaxed about some of the things that you can do. You can really enjoy doing basic science and you can really enjoy seeing how it is applied to, to for, the, for the betterment of mankind. And uh, that's what we tried to do. Um, and I think in a sense that, that young scientists don't give up uh, on, on basic science, but keep your left eye trained upon what it might be useful for. Uh, that's great advice, Dr. Webster. And I thank you so much for being with us on Go Green Radio today. And, and congratulations on your award. I'm sure that... Um, you know, the, the exposure that this award will bring to your work um, will help you magnify and expand upon it, and I hope that's the case. Thank you so much for being well, with us. And Thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed this very much. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, to our listeners, we'll be right back after a quick commercial break, so don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our last guest today is Dr. Tissa Alongasker, and he's the chairman of the Environmental Sciences and Engineering Department and professor of civil engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. And he was awarded for his contributions in diminishing the impact of water contamination. Dr. Alongasker, I'm so glad to have you on the show. You received the Groundwater Prize for your work in diminishing the impact of water contamination. Talk to us about the innovation that that you have developed that predicts the movement of toxins in groundwaters in groundwater and ways to mitigate their environmental risk. Uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about groundwater, which is a very important uh, resource, as you know. There's a saying that uh, when the well goes dry, then you know the value of water. So for mm-hmm. your, the benefit of the of the listeners, I want to give uh, some little statistics about the groundwater. So groundwater is 31% of the fresh water in the globe, and uh, 1.2% is surface water, and rest of it, 68.7%, is in glaciers and ice caps, uh, which are not easily uh, uh, used. So roughly 2 billion people rely on groundwater as their main source of fresh water. In the most, this is the most uh, extracted natural resource. And if you look at uh, some of the data, uh, study data from NASA, there are 13 of the largest 37 aquifers in the world are significantly distressed because of water extraction. So there are a number of, uh, so this particular uh, award was given to me for, uh, uh, for my, some, some research I did on some critical scientific uh, discoveries which will help uh, us to actually manage our uh, groundwater systems better because some of these aquifers are going to be already under contamination and also going to be threatened by in the future. So there are a number of challenges uh, studying groundwater contamination. First, 
like in rivers and lakes, we cannot see groundwater, which is underground, and we don't know really what's happening there. If you have a contaminant in a river, you can, you can immediately see fish dying and things like that. But when another problem is that if you take a, a glass of water, which is coming from a well, it may look perfectly clean, it is, uh, but it may have some toxic chemical, even at very low concentrations in parts per billion, which are very major uh, uh, human health risk. This can be carcinogens, for example. And then also another challenge is that uh, they, when we do research on fundamental research, they don't allow us to go to the field and spill these toxic chemicals. So, so we cannot do these experiments in the field, and mm -hmm. then uh, we also can control nature in the field. So if you, uh, the, the reason or motivation for this research comes from that uh, in industrial countries, and, and actually all around the world mostly, we have spent billions of uh, dollars to clean up these aquifers, but there's not a lot of success. And, and this always has to do with there are some, uh, some, there are some many fundamental knowledge gaps in our understanding of these chemicals, how they behave in the long term. Mm -hmm. So the innovation in my work come from the very, very unique approaches I had developed to conduct very fundamental research to fill these knowledge gaps using synthetic aquifers. Basically, what we do is we, because we kind of study this problem in the field, we create test aquifers in the laboratory where we try to bring the complexities of the geology, which you don't see in the lab, to the, uh, from the, in the field to the lab. And then we instrument these uh, test aquifers with precision sensors and to make measurements uh, of things we cannot see. So we basically make these measurements. From the measurement, we can see what's going on uh, in these systems. And then we simulate the flow and transport the, under conditions that are similar to what can be expected in the, in the field. So, uh, so using these precision measurements, we can determine concentrations at very, very low levels that affect human health. So the scientific understanding we were able to achieve in this research has allowed us to reliably predict movement of toxins and devices way to mitigate their environmental risk. Interesting. And I know we've talked about this on Go Green Radio before, and we've talked about people's concerns about the impact of, of fracking and the chemicals that are used in that, you know, moving through uh, the groundwater and through the geology that, again, like you said, we can't see. And so this is really, really interesting. Now, this isn't just an issue for developing countries. More than 80% of U.S. water contamination stems from either domestic sewage or toxic waste. And some six 16.5 million Americans drink polluted water. Is this due to old infrastructure or is there some other underlying cause? So this, this information uh, you used uh, uh, in this question actually came from a, a study which was conducted not too long ago, 2007, uh, 2016, uh, related to public, safety of public, public water supplies. So this is, this particular story has to do with, uh, two chemicals, polyfluoroalkyls and perfluoroalkyls. These are referred to as PFASs. And like you said, uh, 16 million Americans have one of 
six types of the PFCs in their drinking water at a, at a, at a concentrations which are way above the maximum EPA limit. So these chemicals, PFAs, were introduced 16 years ago, and it is used uh, uh, in food packing material, for example, pizza boxes, popcorn bags, fabrics, nonsticks, cooking pans, and firefighting forms, and it's everywhere. And the highest levels were in uh, watersheds near industrial sites, military bases, and wastewater treatment plants. So it is correct to say that this is not just a problem for developing countries, as PFAs are extensively used in developing countries. So because it is found in every product, the chemicals migrate into air, household dust, food, soil and groundwater, and surface water, and they eventually make their way into drinking water. That the cost may not be fully attributed to all infrastructure, uh, there are some contributing factors. The underlying issue is that they degrade very, very, very slowly, not at all in some cases. They persist for a very long time and get easily into drinking water that includes both surface and groundwater. So this is a problem which is going to be there for a long time because this is associated mm-hmm. with everyday life things we use in our, in our, in our lives. I really loved a quote of yours that I read in a press release announcing your prize. Um, You said, as a professional and a citizen, we have the responsibility and moral obligation to help sustain this critical resource we share. You were talking about water. Prestigious prizes like this will motivate creative people to pursue research, to develop innovations, and solve the pressing problems with the Earth's water. And you know, Dr. Tissa, I fear that too many Americans take water for granted. Help us understand why we need to be more careful in our treatment of water. Yeah, I think I think this is. Uh, I want to make a few points here. Uh, the first is that actually it's quite obvious when you look at the atmosphere, air. We we share the air, but people tend to forget that we also share water. Even though water is in different continents, but they are connected in a very interesting indirect way. For example, if you drink a cup of uh, coffee in USA here, and you assume that we are not consuming, we are only consuming one cup of water. But in reality, the beans which are the coffee beans which are grown in Africa or South America uh, to produce that uh, amount of coffee beans in a cup of water, you probably will be uh, using much much more water. In other words, if a lifestyle we main, uh, maintain here needs water at some place. So this way, water is a, is a shared resource. So the Americans, as Americans, we take this for granted that we think that the waste of water, uh, saving water here, wasting, I mean, wasting water in another place doesn't affect you, but it's affect all of us uh, in this, in this global, global economy. Absolutely. Dr. Elongascare, I'm so pleased that you could join us today. I thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your award. I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in with us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. 